0: welcome to drop everything bonus edition the vip podcast vip stands for very interesting people this podcast will give us a chance at holzman studios to interview performers who aren't necessarily jugglers but who are still in the variety realm like comedians escape artists and so much more our first guest is magician robert strong who's the author of the new book amaze and delight secrets to creating magic In Business. Available now at Amazon.com. Before you listen to Robert, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA, International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. These podcasts in the VIP series will be done in addition to our regular Drop Everything podcasts. So keep an eye out for them. All right. Now drop everything. Get ready for Robert Strong. Welcome to the first bonus episode of the Drop Everything Podcast called the VIP Podcast for very interesting people. My first guest is a good friend of mine and a very interesting person, Robert Strong. Hi, Robert. Hey, Daniel. Do
1: I get to interrupt you when you're doing like official intros like that? Sure. It's too late. I've already done it, but
0: go ahead if you want to add something. No, no, no. I just want to
1: interrupt you in the future. That was beautiful.
0: Oh, thanks. Thank you very much. It's my gift. I'm... uh, professional podcaster, making almost over $100 a podcast, so... Wow! (laughs) I know. I am a multi-thousandaire. It's uh, impressive. But the reason I'm talking (laughs) to you is because you're very impressive and very successful, and you have a lot to share with our audience, not just with jugglers, but with performers and people in general. Before we get into your career and your new book, Amazing Delight, Secrets to Creating Magic in Business, let's get a little background. Where were you born and what did your parents do for a living?
1: I was born in Frederick, Maryland. It's a small farm town outside of uh, Baltimore and Washington, D.C. It's less of a farm town now. That was in 1972. At the time, my father was an insurance agent and my mother was a stay-at-home mom. But uh, when I was 12 years old, I started a little advertising business that later my parents bought from me. And they became publishers and uh, they sold ads. And uh, they carried that on. Long story, but at age 12, I decided I wanted to be a magician. And I'm like, everybody in my neighborhood needs my business card. So how do I distribute it? I'll walk to 1,000 homes and put my business card on their door. Well, if I'm already walking to a 1,000 homes, I might as well carry other people's advertisements. So I charged $40. I didn't do the printing. I, they gave me their brochures. And I put them in a bag that was gifted by one of the, the advertisers that had their advertisement on the outside, hung it on the doorknob. And I started to hire my friends to do that. It was called a door, um, Door-to-Door Services and, um, by Strongini Enterprises, which was my magic name, was the great Strong Genie. And so that's how I got the name out about my magic. But later, when my magic shows picked up, I sold that to my parents. My parents, for the last, I don't know, 35 years of their career, continued Strongini Enterprises.
0: So Strong Genie was this idea of sort of going door-to-door and putting flyers or business cards uh, to each person?
1: I was totally convoluted and it didn't make perfect sense, but I was the great strong genie that wanted to do magic shows. And every, on both sides of my family, my mother's side, and my father's side, everybody's self-employed. So we all have a business sense and we think about like, how do we promote our business and how do we run a business? And that was all kind of like second nature to me. So to distribute my business card, I put it in a bag, but I put it in 40 other flyers at $40 a hmm. pop. And as a 12 year old, I was making $1,600 every time I hired other kids to go around and, distributed these on the doorknob. And after about a year, I was doing that every month. After about a year, I was I was doing enough magic shows that I sold the whole business, drawing Dini Enterprises to my parents for $100 in lifetime free advertising. And they've been doing that for for the past 35 years. They're the ones who spammed the houses, but they later also started Frederick's Child and Bingo Bulletin. So they were publishers and editors, but but I kind of kickstarted that in 1985.
0: And how did your interest in performing start? Because you said you started at 12. Was there anybody in your family or any relatives who did magic or performed?
1: Interestingly enough, my grandfather, Grandpa Ben, I knew I was a magician. I knew him until I was about 28 before he passed. And after he passed away, I got a photo of him doing a magic show at Milton Bradley in the 50s. He had a big pumpkin. He was pulling a rabbit from from the pumpkin. And there was a lady there that he made appear from some box that was off to the side. He never told me that he was a magician. I'm totally a self started and I didn't know anybody else was my family. But also when I was about 42, I I had this recollection of a memory of back when I was 12 in 1985, taking a road trip to Springfield, Massachusetts and visiting family. And when I did a couple magic tricks at the coffee table, some aunt said, you know, you're related to Houdini. And as a 12 year old who had just gotten to magic for just maybe a week, that didn't land. And at age 42, not that long ago, like eight years ago, I'm thinking about that. I'm like, is this a memory that I made up or invented? And so I called my mother and I said, do you remember back in 1985, back in Springfield, Massachusetts, some aunt saying, you know, you're related to Houdini.' She goes, yeah, I totally remember that. I'm like, can we research this? So she called um, a relative and the relative said, oh, yeah, my mother's uncle is Sidney Radner, the great Rendar." And so be my great, I think it's like my great-granduncle, it was Sidney Radner. Now, Sidney Radner was the protege to Hardin, Theo Hardine, the younger brother of Houdini. And so when Houdini passed away, all his mansion and his share went to his younger brother. And then when he passed away, it all got given to my great-granduncle, Sidney Radner. And for the past almost 90 years, whenever something is to supposed to be hand, owned or held by Houdini, my relatives are the ones who do and what you sign off on that. What is that called? Authenticate on on uh on the
0: authenticated
1: authenticate. Yes, yeah. yeah, so the authenticated. And so I connected with Cindy Renner's son and we put together the official Houdini seance in San Francisco about seven years ago. We did it as a Kickstarter. I just kinda wanted to learn how to get a Kickstarter going. i basically, basically it was when we hit fifteen thousand dollars on the Kickstarter, this thing's gonna happen. And so I brought in all the pillars of who I thought represented Houdini. We had a skeptic because um uh, houdini was a skeptic in his life we brought in a medium a self-proclaimed medium who actually was trying to contact houdini because that was part of his life we brought in a magician we brought in a uh, someone who was really great at social media and and press and all that because he was really excellent at that we brought in an escape artist and and all that amc hosted it all together we brought in uh twenty thousand dollars and my my aunt was like okay i'll take my half of it hmm. and after i did all the math i took a loss of about two hundred dollars after the pizza party Right. So I was like, well, if you want half, you actually owe me 100 bucks." I never heard from him again. Oh, that's funny. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, that sounds wonderful. Once again, that's what, another type of you sort of applying something in your life and applying this idea of your interest and somehow making it into a moneymaker. So not only did you learn how to use Kickstarter, but you did it in a profitable uh, I, way.
1: I uh, took a tiny loss on that, but the whole idea was to learn how to leverage Kickstarter. So in the future, if I want to do something really big, I understood how it worked and I can... I could get through it and and be successful, so it was purposely done as a um as a learning process. I'm taking notes now too. that story was so much fun that's not even in my book. I'm taking <laughs> notes to put that in in the uh, in a, a blog post or something about my book. Oh, I mentioned well, a book. did I mention I have a book? Well well, of
0: course we'll get we'll get deep into that as well further in the podcast. We have to keep people hanging on until we get to that. so now you've always struck me as someone who loves to learn and le- learns all these new skills, especially how to use new technology. Back in the day, how did you learn magic? This is before YouTube, and I, you're so old, it's probably before before television. So how how did you sort of start your interest in magic? Were there any books so, or anything you could recommend?
1: Oh, recommend. Well, books are the best way because, you know, a book can be $40, and you can get 100 magic tricks out of it. If you go to the magic shop, you spend 50 bucks and you get one trick. So I highly recommend books. I started uh, in 85, and I used to, every month, go to Al's magic shop in Washington, D.C., and all the money I made during that month, I'd go spend it Owls and I just loved, loved, loved that. That was kind of my thing. There were a couple of magic groups in the area. I'd go to those. I had a couple of mentors that were very, you know, Ray, the great Raymond uh, really helped me at one point. Roger Lindsay helped me at another point. And then there's, you know, I stand on the shoulders of great. So there's a lot of people that were very involved. And then there was like a crew of us that studied clowning and juggling and all that uh, in high school. And we just spent day in, day out consuming videos, and, and we were uh, taught by, i see his face, a great ringling clown that is so impressive. I can't think of his name right this second. It's not been, Charlie Fry? or No, not Charlie Fry. I'll have it in a minute. I'll, okay. I'll look it up while we're, we're here. And he, he taught us clowning. I, I only studied with him for a couple months, but it also just inspired me to go further and, and study with others. Uh, hence, later in life, we, we I was a co-producer of Motion Fest, where we brought in all the greats to kind of teach, and I, you were... You were a great, fantastic teacher there, and I, I think you enjoyed Motion Fest, got to reconnect with lots of people.
0: Yeah, I wish that was still going on. It was a wonderful thing where you brought all these great performers and teachers like Avner and I think Bob Berkey and just a, a really yes. the, the top of the variety performing to once again have an experience where people could come get mentored by a whole group of different performers at the same time.
1: Michael Ruffin was the main producer. He's the founder. Mm-hmm. Thomas Dowdy was the uh, the Ringling clown that I studied with in okay. uh, early high school. But the concept of Motion Fest is we're not going to teach you magic or juggling or any skills. We're going to come and teach you character and story and writing. We're going to teach you how to do your taxes, marketing. We're going to teach you how to um, choreography and dance and costuming and lighting and sound and AV and all that kind of stuff. So we taught all the, was, would it be ancillary, all, all the other skills that support yeah, the, the auxiliary magic. types of uh, activities auxiliary, that support
0: the you. yeah. So it's on, t- on 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 uh, what's that first word? On, th- on... <laughs> I forgot it already. About like, uh, the Houdini auxiliary. story? Auxiliary. No, <laughs> authenticate. Auxiliary. So we've
1: learned a couple of new words: authenticate, authenticate and auxiliary.
0: So I'm glad I could teach you I'm, something I'm today, gonna... Robert. So that's good.
1: Yes, please. I did a fantastic. Uh, if I can say. Myself workshop till late last night at OMC, the Oakland Magic Circle, based on the book that I'm not allowed to promote because we'll lose people. But
0: um, no, we're going to promote I it. That. It's just not not quite yet. So that's oh yeah, you have to hang on to the end. Exactly, and now your many stories about the Playboy Mansion and cruising on Learjets. and we'll see if that's for the very end. So. Playboy Mansion,
1: wrong, I just wrong, I just made
0: magician. that up. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm uh, too young. when you uh, started at twelve. Were you always just like, that's it. I'm going to be a performer. Did you have any other, any other desires, or so that's just really struck early no, that this is what I'm going to do. I
1: saw, I saw a magician street performing in a harbor and a switch flipped. I was, I wanted to be a magician. I've never looked back. I've never thought about changing my mind. I am definitely doing my passion and magic is like something I can talk about day and night. I can eat, sleep, drink it. Like I never run out of enjoyment and talking about it and So like when I get to the magicians or go to the magic castle or whatever, like I am in absolute heaven and my wife can't understand how I don't eventually get bored of it or get tired of it or whatever. And so I've just, I found the thing that I just love. And that's certainly a
0: key word uh, that gears towards excellence is passion. I mean, if you have passion for something, then all the work you put into it and the practice you put into it isn't a drudgery. It just becomes something that you want to do. Do you think that's one of the keys to your success is that you have a real passion for magic?
1: I have a real passion for magic, but I would say my passion is a little bit more about giving people amazing experiences and magic is my tool to do it. So it could be juggling. It could be comedy. It could be, it could be anything as long as I'm creating experiences for people where there's an instant immediate, like joy, laughter and, and enjoyment. I don't think I would love doing something where I produce something and then I don't, I don't actually get to hear and feel the laughs immediately. Like, that's not as interesting to me. I like it. I like being in the room with them or over a Zoom call. And I, I just did a magic show recently where I had everybody put a rubber band on their hand and they did some move. And then the magic trick happened on their own hand and they did it themselves. And to hear a thousand people all trick themselves at the same time and they all felt this joy, it was a sound better than anything i've ever seen before and i'm actually for the rest of my life going to put that in the show so that people can experience that
0: yeah that sounds fantastic so that's, that's what that I they enjoy. can do it themselves yeah you enjoy creating those yeah. experiences and speaking of those experiences and kind of uh honoring the past performers in your life tell us about the the show you produce with uh, interviewing the great comedy legends oh this
1: is the best thing i've ever worked on in my entire life it's the thing i feel most proud of and it was the best experience i i produced with uh, with Julianna Gallon, my co-producer, I produced three episodes of comedy talks, conversations with the legends of comedy. So what happened was, is I think you were, you were very kind and generous and in introduced me to the really great people over at Comedy Magic Club in Hermosa Beach, California. And I went down there and I performed. I had the best of my of my life, and it wasn't being on stage was great, but being in the green room every night, Jay Leno or um, Gary Shandling or or Seinfeld, and people would just come through the room and do some stage time and i would have to go after them which was always kind of like really you want me to go after okay i'm happy to do that so i'm sorry i'm taking notes about my own thing because there's not this this is not even in the book so i'm in the green room and i'm supposed to go on and do my 10 minute set and i didn't want to leave the green room because the conversations was were so good so i had this idea of like wouldn't the audience rather be backstage listening to the conversations, the old comedy legends telling stories because they have great stories. They love telling them and they're great at telling them. And so in my head, I was calculating what would be the show that I think would be a good future TV show. So I shot three pilots when I produced them, every show had multiple standing ovations. Like people just jumped to their feet and all that. So I had in the show, I had uh, Carol Channing from Broadway. I had Rich Little, the impersonator and Steve Rossi from Martin Alley and Steve Rossi, on, on one show, and Steve Rossi was the sleeper. He had a story about everything. If we talked Whatever topic we brought up, he was actually there, and it was pretty incredible. Another show, we had um, Paul Mazursky, the director. We had George Segal, the actor, and Ronnie Shell, the comedian. And another show, we had Will Durst, the political satirist. We had uh, Shelly Berman, uh, the comedian and improviser from Chicago. And we had one more on that one, and that was Robert Morse from How to Succeed in Business. And I was never able to sell it to television. I did it 2010, it was kind of after the crash and TV was looking for some content for for very young audiences and all that. So bad timing, but it was definitely the best thing I ever worked on. I just, it really opened a window to the people. I said earlier, the shoulders that we stand on of of grades. It really gave me access to that and, and gave me great appreciation for that. And also made me start to think about how I can be that for the next group of performers. So I started thinking about my legacy
0: and how do you develop that vision where you're in a situation like the green room at comedy and magic, which has to be one of the best backstage experiences because first of all, they provide wonderful food. The, the walls are covered with the autographs of all the performers who have been there all those years. The, The hallways are lined with photographs of all the great performers. So the place just reeks of show business, but how do you develop that kind of sense? Like you say, even when you were a kid, with these flyers as you develop sort of this advertising business, how do you sort of have this vision of everywhere you go, how to apply it in a way that's uh, productive
1: to your own life like that? Well, um, I think ideas are easy. Execution is hard. And I think the execution is not so scary to me because I saw my parents run businesses, my grandparents run businesses. And so it was just a matter of breaking it down to the bite-sized chunks and putting it in an order that makes sense and also just, kind of imagining what the finances are in the average situation, best-case situation, worst-case situation, and kind of seeing all the pivots you can do uh, in those situations. I think my brain just kind of works that way, and it certainly can be learned. I I, I don't know how to break it down for someone yet, but if I spent some time, I probably could. It's really just thinking everything through every single step and and making it not overwhelming by going, okay, what needs to be done first? First we need... A venue and we need the lighting and the sound and the cameras next we need to start to line up the performers and all that and lining up the performers i got to call so many celebrities and took my call and i explained what i was going to do and it was getting close to the dates and we didn't have one celebrity signed and (laughs) And how'd you get through to to the
0: celebrities did you have to go through intermediaries you have to go through managers and agents how'd you actually contact these legends of comedy
1: so I've had the honor of sharing the stage with a lot of them so i got to open for them or, or um, attend a conference where i was uh attending and they were speaking or um uh, or i ran into a couple of them on flights over the years so i contacted the people that i ran into and because i kind of kept in touch with them sending them holiday cards or just little notes and stuff like that i got warm reception so it was just building rapport and relationships not knowing that i was going to ask them to be part of it later as it was getting close not one of them was going was signing the contract and i had like 30 people that i'm like okay if these first three shades go go well i'm going to start you know have seven more kind of lined up and then finally it was like we had to either pull the plug and not do it or we had to go forward and do it and not knowing if they're going to sign so so i finally said to one of the performers i said yeah carol channing has signed Hmm. kind of knowing that she was going going to she was planning to Sure. And then Rich Little's like, well, if Carol Channing, signed, I'm in. And then I contacted Steve Rossi, and he goes, well, if Rich Little's in, I'm in. And then I contacted Carol Channing. I said, ready to sign. We have uh, Rich Little and Steve Rossi. She goes, well, if those two are in, I'm totally in. So, uh, as a magician who lies for a living, that was the most stressful lie of my entire career. I, I was knots in my stomach, doing this white lie, thinking that, every, you know, this goes against everything I believe in of you know being honest all the time. But it was the the one thing I kind of needed to do to get all the dominoes to fall. I'm I'm embarrassed by it, but also proud of it too.
0: Well, I think if you look at show business and people's websites, there's always a degree of embellishment. And like you're saying, you, these people you were, you felt they were gonna sign, so there was a bit of truth in it that it just hadn't happened yet. What part do you think Thank embellishment you for me takes me
1: feel place? Okay for, for being a terrible <laughs> human being, Daniel, I appreciate that.
0: Well, no, I'm just trying to rationalize it in the way that other people can look at because it because I think there's always ways well. to say, like, he's performed in a number of TV shows. You don't have to say that number is two. Right, right. You know,
1: he's... Well, uh, i'm not, I'm not at the Elizabeth Holmes level of lying. I was just at a small little white lie. Well, it's like kind of that fake until right you from make Theranos? it two. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, was that the right name, the lady of the... Yeah, the from Theranos? the one with the deep lady? voice yeah,
0: who, who tried to fool all of oh, yeah. valley. I, and to believe yeah, that she yeah. had the, so cure to I, I, the testing for diabetes that didn't exist?
1: Yeah, it didn't exist. I, but the thing is, is if she had gotten it over the course of the time, she'd be a hero. So it's just the fact that she wasn't able to pull off her lies. So well, my I think my lie that's worked the out thing. okay.
0: Yeah, I think yeah. if your embellishment, let's call it, as opposed to a flat-out lie, because I'd hate for people to think that your Robert Strong is, is a, a poss- possible
1: uh, liar, because I wouldn't put well, you as that. People pay me to lie to them, so I kind of am. <laughs>
0: Well, you're a professional liar, then. In your personal life, you're uh, scrupulously Hon- honest. I,
1: as uh, Jamie and Swift calls himself an honest liar. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because people go to see a magician because and they know they're going to be fooled. Yeah. Th- right. They know they're I, that's I part of the deal.
1: Now let's and talk if about your
0: doing that to be a con artist. Now there are people who uh, that are con artists who use magic
1: as part of their cons. Um, yeah, I think
0: Yuri Geller is still back at it.
1: Back, back to his his using magic tricks to tell lies.
0: Yeah, there are people who are gullible to that kind of thing—that was spoon bending or the the psychic thoughts or the the be able to communicate. Oh, I, find, I find all that very dangerous. I find I find that despicable and dangerous. But let's well, let's go back let's to your career back, and that. how let's you developed positive. from this uh, child performer at twelve. Take me through the kind of steps that led you to your first professional gigs. How you expanded beyond the sort of the local neighborhood shows into more yeah.
1: nationwide shows. Yeah, it was a pretty direct route. And there's like these three year cycles. Every three years, I seem to kind of reinvent myself and level myself up, which I'm very proud of because I've got a lot of friends who have really become the experts at birthday party shows and all that stuff. And I really respect that. But every three years, I kind of feel like, um, i changed, and I think that keeps me as passionate about it as, as I was when I was 12. So birthday parties, the first three years of my career, and then I did um, fairs and festivals and uh, elementary schools and daycares and senior centers and libraries and all that. And then when I went off to college, I did colleges, universities, comedy clubs and all that. And then after that, I did some, uh, these the, the next three years was probably the time where I feel like I learned the most. I got booked at science centers, aquariums, museums, and zoos. And they booked me for shows a day, seven days a week for like four month contract. And that allowed me to take a routine and A-B test it. I would tell a joke one way and tell another way, a longer pause, different punchline. I would try a trick at this angle or that angle and all that. And I would just watch the audience and just keep optimizing for their enjoyment. And that's when I really learned how to watch an audience, read an audience and connect with an audience and have a dialogue with the audience. And I think that was so important for my career was stage time, stage time, stage time. Then I did um, some international tours. I did colleges for three years. I did cruise ships for three years. And then around 2001, when I was doing cruise ships, I moved to the Bay Area. And um, after cruise ships, I started doing corporate. But for the past, since 2007, a lot of trade shows and conferences. I would humbly call myself an expert at trade shows if anybody wants information on that. That's kind of where I can do a deep dive and not feel like an imposter. And then just recently, I wrote the book that we're not going to talk about yet, just to change my career to becoming a keynote speaker. And that's my new reinvention. And um, we'll get to that later.
0: Yeah. Let's get back to this part about doing a lot of shows, because there's always this showbiz adage that, you know, you have to do a thousand shows to, to make your bones and really work your show. Like, I think that's true in a way, but also you have to have good habits while you're doing these shows. Did you take notes? Did you videotape yourself? What's the best way to improve as you're doing shows, you think?
1: Well, when I was doing the zoo science centers, aquariums, and museums, I was watching the audience and really paying attention. But after every every show, whether it's a five minute show or a show, I, a longer show, I take time to um, to do the post mortem and think about what worked, what didn't work, what I, what I do better. I studied film in college, so watching videos and editing videos of my show was painful, but so important because I'm like, why did I do it that way? It could have done this way, and I see what the audience sees and and you kind of have to, you know, have two hats. There's the character and then there's the performer and be able to talk about the character kind of detached and be able to uh, give the character notes and all that. Work, having directors and writers and producers and all that is so useful and helpful. Spending time with other performers and watching the video and you take a, a half hour show and you spend four hours just going through it line by line going, how can this be improved? But I, I think the the best advice today is if you really want to level up, I mean, besides getting lots of stage time and getting stage time close together, not like once a month and all that, you got to back-to-back get as much stage time as you can, is you just take your phone and you set it on stage and you hit audio record. And then when you're traveling to your next show, whether it's a day later or a week later, on your way to the show, whether you're walking or driving or flying, you listen to the audio of the last show. And what you do is you listen to what really landed well. And you remember to do that in today's show and the things that didn't go really well, like, Oh, the pause wasn't long enough, or, you know, I wasn't speaking clearly here or all that. You correct those things so that it's like really fresh in your head. The last show, you're constantly refining the previous show. So listening to the audio of your previous show, when you're on your way to your next show, I think is the best way to level up because you, you capture the things that worked in the last show and you, you, you really get that right, and you're minimizing the things that aren't working. It's so great. Now, you talk
0: about uh, going to college. You, you wanted to be a performer at such a young age. What, what importance did you place on college, and why did you decide to go to get a degree when you knew so early that all you wanted to do was
1: perform? Well, my, my father insisted. <laughs> okay, um, right. Yeah, no, he insisted. And I also thought, well, you know, if, if I become famous and break out, I'll leave college. I didn't become famous or anything like that. So I, I wasn't super attached. I uh you know, I studied film, which was something that was quite enjoyable to be in. I think filmmaking is very similar to magic. They're both storytelling through a mission. In the film you're editing out the you know, the fact that there's, you know, a writer and a director, and lighting person, sound person and you you cut it to a story that tell you creates an illusion that there's these actors are real people and there's a story in there and magic is the same thing. You're omitting the, the secret method to create a story and so my brain worked that way and I totally enjoyed it. And, and I got to use it later when I did some zoom shows and I'm, I produced some content here and there, not, not necessarily for social media, more, more for my customers, but um, I enjoyed it. And I think the what was great is it was community. there was fantastic. And I think for a lot of people, the friends you make in college are the people who lift you up for the rest of your life. So it, I think it's good for a lot of people. I think college will be disrupted by time. My I have a new daughter by time she's ready to go to college. It might, it may not exist as it is today, and I think it's time for it to be disrupted. It's, I think there's there's something better that could be imagined between now and then.
0: And most importantly, you made your, your dad proud. <laughs> most important, yeah. We'll to talk to my therapist. And how's he feel about your career as a magician? Was he always supportive of that?
1: So my parents have always been super super supportive. So much so that my mother was my assistant in my act, who I saw it in half saying hey this is every teenager's dream is to sell their mother in half and she drove me to shows and all that my father's always uh, been very supportive very proud and he would take me to the magic shop in dc every month and all that so i think what happened was before i even went to college i was making probably double what a, a teacher made uh graduating from college and so i think they're like okay he's going to be fine like we don't have to worry about him and so they're he was like, you do what you want. As long as you go to college, I want you to do that. And I'm glad I did go to college. He didn't have to twist my arm so much.
0: And you kind of went to this college of of performing, you know, doing all these shows. I know one long contract you had uh, over multiple years was with the the Smithsonian. Uh, How'd you get that? um, What's that like? Yeah.
1: I'm so glad you asked that question. So one of my heroes is Laura Green of the Juggling Queen. She was so kind and generous to me. So let's back up to when I'm 12. Okay. Um, And uh, I decided I wanted to go audition and perform at the Inner Harbor. And the committee, Laura Green, was was an institution there, and she was part of the committee. And everybody agreed, Robert Strong has potential, but he's not quite ready yet to street perform at the Inner Harbor. So they said, invite him to come back next year to audition, and, and he'll get it. So Laura Green said, this is street performing you don't want to get somebody who's already good you want to give people opportunities to get good that's the point of street performing and everybody disagreed with her and she said i'm quitting the program i'm leaving the board i won't street perform here unless you put this kid on on the roster wow and she felt very strongly it's a place for people with potential to get good i didn't know the story until years later so, you know, I got really terrible spots, but it gave me a chance to improve. And the next year when I auditioned again, it was, it was a much easier. End. And it might not have been 12. It might have been 13. It might have been my, after my first year of magic that that happened. And so I didn't know about that. So fast forward a bunch of different years. She always watched my show, always gave positive feedback, always was helpful and all that. She said to me, hey, Robert, I'm going to load in my show, The Smithsonian. I could use your help. Will you come with me on Monday, the day before the, the first show? I said, sure. So I get in her van and help her load up her props. So we go to the Smithsonian and we load everything into the Discovery Theater. And she says, Robert, I want you to meet Roberta Gaspari. She's the uh, executive director of the uh, Discovery Theater at the Smithsonian. Roberta, I want you to meet Robert. I'm retiring. He's going to replace me. Hmm. Nice. So she handed the gig to me. And uh, for 10 years, I was an artist in residence and I performed there and I taught magic. He is someone I owe uh, so much to. And she's a juggler, just to connect it to people who don't know her. Now, speaking of juggling,
0: initially in your show, you had more of a variety show that included juggling. It seems like over the years, you've kind of still juggled in your, in your personal life and just for pleasure. But you eliminated the juggling from your show. Uh, why did you do that? And what's the reasoning behind it?
1: So uh, a couple of things. I had a lot of variety. So I wanted to be like a new vaudevillian, high-energy variety show. And I hammered a nail in my nose. I did fire, I breathed fire, juggled to chainsaw. And... And all that. And in 2007, I had a motorcycle accident. And that injury prevents me from doing some unicycling and rollo bolo. I can do some but not at the level I was before. And I was looking at my show and where I wanted where I was and where I wanted to be. And a couple of thoughts went through my head. The geek magic, the sideshow stuff, I felt lowered my price. And I was mm-hmm. like, if I really want to get a higher price, I need to take the the sideshow stuff and the the geek magic out, so I took that out. And then it wasn't so easy to do rollabolo and unicycling with my knee injury, and so I took that out. And then there was just a little bit of juggling that stayed in the show for a little bit, and I kind of came to the conclusion that people. This is when everybody starts using Google for everything to find everything. People are not searching for a juggler for their corporate event. They're searching for magic. That's the thing that they understand they got some juggling in the show. That's totally okay, but they're not looking for a juggler. I was like, well, I'm a marketing person. Let's sell myself as a magician. And there'll just be a little bit of juggling show. And over time. The juggling kind of came out because what was left was me juggling uh three, four five balls. And when I looked at that routine, it wasn't a routine that was uh, original and I wasn't proud of it. So it was kind of uh, the choice was kind of take it out and, and, and make other stuff more original and more mine. And um, yeah, now I just struggle for fun.
0: No, I think I caught Before you in a little a... bit of an embellishment, Robert. You said it was a motorcycle accident. Wasn't it a scooter?
1: Wow, <laughs> how rude. That was that, that was my only lie in this whole interview. Okay, so it was a large scooter, the kind of scooter you put on a highway track. Right, but it was Absolutely the motorcycle right. is a bit grandiose I, for yeah. what it was. Oh, I'm sorry, the connection's not very good, Daniel. I can't hear you, let's move on. <laughs> we'll move
0: on, we'll move on. Let's move on to some more on. highlights. <laughs> Uh, Talking about Washington, D.C., you also
1: got to perform at the White House twice. What's that experience like? So I got to perform at the White House for George Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton, and then I was invited again uh, a third time, and I I didn't do it, and I regret that. So um, what it was was a uh, staff Easter party, and uh, both times the president kind of came in and watched a little bit and went off, but it was the people, the admin, who worked at the White House, brought their families and their kids, and I got two magic shows. And then the third time they invited me, they took away the parking on the Ellipse, which was free parking, and um, I would have had to pay like forty dollars uh, for parking at the nearest parking garage. And I said, "Oh, we just reimbursed me for that." And I'm like, "No, we don't pay at all." And I'm like, mm. well, "If you're not paying for parking, I'm not doing it. Totally regret it because I would love to say I've it three times. So for forty bucks, I'm an idiot. Don't don't make that mistake, everyone." Who was the third
0: president? Because uh, maybe it was a president that you didn't want to perform for. Who was the third no,
1: president? No, 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 it was, um, I guess it was um, uh, George Bush Jr., the second, I guess. I don't know. I didn't do that one. So it's hard to remember. Yeah, that
0: seems like a pretty uh, petty decision to bail on the White House and performing for a president because of a $40 parking yeah, fee. Yeah, no, that was,
1: I'm an idiot. I thought they were going to say yes. They called my bluff. Mm. I'm an idiot.
0: <laughs> well, obviously, we all make mistakes in our career. Speaking of uh, mistakes, you had some awkward experiences. Tell me about this experience trying to teach juggling to a group
1: of disgruntled employees. Oh, okay. So, um, what was the year? I don't know. I was on the East Coast. So, it was um, the late 90s. I got a job to uh, distribute beautiful orange juggling balls, three of them in a nice little box with instructions to every employee. And what it was is uh, they, they were going through a rebrand and the rebrand was this nice, beautiful sphere, this orange sphere. And so they had the three balls to represent and they, they wanted to kind of tell everyone, hey, you're all juggling a lot of responsibilities and we want you to have a little little break and juggle. So I went office to office one at a time to teach them how to juggle and to gift them the balls. Well, what I didn't realize was that the company was imploding and uh, nobody wanted me there and they're like why are you wasting money on this when we don't actually even have money so people were literally throwing the balls at me uh and telling me to get the out of their office and i was like oh my god i need to try you like i i needed to just like convert people to happy you know to be happy for a moment so i just kept trying every single tactic i could and it was a long painful job and i ended up with hundreds and hundreds of balls left over that people didn't want to claim and all that. And it turns out that company is Arthur Anderson. And with the whole Enron debacle, they imploded. And they were one of those ones that were considered too big to fail. And uh, their last ditch attempt to kind of, you know, build culture and build morale and, and all that was to send me in there with some juggling balls. And uh, that didn't end so well. But it got me really thinking about culture in a workplace. And so I I've done lots of workshops to help people with culture and team building and all that up with communication and collaboration and all that so i've got a couple workshops up my sleeve that include teaching magic or teaching juggling or doing the marshmallow challenge or or improv exercises but i don't call them improv exercises and a lot of that's on a in a book that we won't talk about
0: we we will talk about it we're (laughs) we're that's going to be our that's your latest project so we're saving it for oh i know but we will talk Uh, about amazing delight secrets to creating magic in business by robert strong and david available now on amazon It's an Amazon bestseller. It was.
1: It was for a day.
0: Oh, well, that's all it takes, right? To have the Amazon bestseller
1: uh, still approval. If you're a writer, you know that doesn't carry any weight. But if you're a normal person, Amazon bestseller is a big deal. So basically, day by day, they they give rankings, and, and we knocked it out of the park for a day. We got number one bestseller in three different categories.
0: So that's kind of one of the strategies is to sort of have your friends and really promote for people to buy it on one particular day.
1: Yeah, what we did is we, we picked the first day and put an introductory price, the lowest price they would allow us to do it. And we had a in-person event, a virtual event, and we emailed everybody and did everything on social media and basically said between 6 p.m. and 9 p.m. on this day, buy this book. And, you know, I think we, we sold like 600 copies in a very short amount of time. Fantastic. I bought 100 of them myself, but that was... Of course. Tribute. But yeah
0: I, yeah. I think your your parents by at least a couple, so... At least
1: my parents might be the only one who's read them, read it, but yeah. I
0: have, I have my very copy funny. right here. And I actually just uh, left you a very nice review on your.
1: So all your listeners should go on Amazon and, and look for Daniel's review on my book. That was really. It's under, under my wife's name though. Cause she's the one that has uh, the Amazon account. So <laughs> there we go. Why not two? Um,
0: why not two books or how many of my oh, books no, did you two. buy Robert Strong? I think you only I, bought I, one. I,
1: no, I think I bought two and reviewed them, but we could go online and look now or later. We'll go later. We'll go later. Yeah. Let's talk no, about got, more no, Robert Strong
0: highlights as opposed to no, I, petty bickering.
1: But, but Let's no, talk I about some highlights. No, let, 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 let me just uh, hang on one more second. Sure. Um, I asked you for a review. You asked me for a review. I think that's one of the things that makes us successful is you have to ask for things and you get 0% of what you don't ask for. And I'm very appreciative when you ask me for, for something, ask me to do something, and, and I hope you don't mind when I ask. And I think that's what helps build the community as we all become our performer family. So thank you.
0: Well, I think what you don't want to be is I have a term for it called a one way street, which sometimes people, uh, they're there to ask you for things. And you're, you know, if you're like us, you're pretty gracious about that. But then when the tables are turned, you find out, Oh, I get it. This only goes one
1: direction. No, that's no fun. You burn, you know, I, I give everybody one or two chances, but not three or four. Yeah. So so don't be
0: a one way street. Make sure that the traffic flows both ways.
1: Agreed. Okay, thanks for letting me hang out there for an extra second.
0: Sure. Let's talk about some more highlights, more about your exciting career. Now, you've done some wonderful things. And one place that I've never performed more than just one day, we did a special event, uh, was the Magic Castle. Tell me about your experiences performing at the Magic Castle.
1: My entire career, I've always dreamt of performing at the Magic Castle. And what happened was every about five years, a new booker would book the Magic Castle. So I would then postcards and send letters and later emails and later phone calls and all that and contact them and build rapport. And they're, oh, we got to get you on the schedule. We got to get you on the schedule. FedEx, you know, VHS cassettes and later DVDs and all that. And every time I kind of got the rapport where they're kind of like, okay, we know you and we trust you and all them put you on the schedule, they would leave and another person would come in. And so eventually I got date and then the pandemic happened. And then I got another date and then the pandemic had a resurgence and then I got another date, which was last April, exactly a year from now. And I went and I did it and I was prepping for the show. And my heart was racing. Like I could feel it in my chest and I'm like, I think I'm having a panic attack. And then I reframed it. I'm like, well, if you wanted something for 40 years, so bad and you got really close and you almost got it, and kept getting taken away from you or you just didn't get it. And then you're finally there. And you hadn't performed in person really much the past two years because of the pandemic. It would be strange not to be so excited that your you know, your heart, you can feel your heart in your, your chest. So I kind of reframed that this is the kind of excitement you feel when a dream comes true. And I had really good shows. I learned so much about what the Magic Castle is and what it isn't. And for anyone who's not been there before, it's literally the most magical place in the world. It's where the best magicians come in the, from all over the world to do their best material for other magicians. And you have to be a member to get in, or you have to know a member to get in. So if anybody wants to uh, attend the Magic Castle and you know someone is a member, make friends with them. Because going to the Magic Castle is an amazing experience. It's, it's They've got a dress code, and it's a big mansion, and there's five or seven different little theaters and these 20 to 30-minute shows that happen every hour in all the different theaters. And uh, they serve a nice dinner, and it's just a great experience. I would... I, at one point I considered moving to LA just to be close to the Magic Castle. It it is it is extraordinary.
0: Well, congratulations on achieving that milestone. That must have been quite yeah. a quite
1: a moment for you. Yeah, it was really great and, and, and you get to do three, four, five shows a night for seven days. So the material that I did there started at a seven and leveled up to maybe an eight point five by the end of the week and that felt really good to see it happen so quickly. Because I, I was doing I was doing some new material. I was specifically did material that was going to be for a taping of Penn & Teller full-off. So I, I wanted that many shows, 21, 25 shows back-to-back to kind of like have it ready for um, for television, which it, it worked out perfectly.
0: Well, let's segue into that. So you did Penn & Teller. That was pretty recent. And I thought it went yeah. very well. I thought you looked very confident. It was very smooth. You had really good control of the, the, set, the setting. Uh, you seemed relaxed and natural. How did you prepare for that? Just sort of, psychologically and how do you control your emotions when these moments where you're very stressful how do you come across so relaxed and natural
1: well stage time stage time stage time and then you play it through your head and I was playing it through my head like everything that could go right or wrong and how I would react and all that well turned out it was way more simple and linear than I expected I did not need to overthink it that much I was definitely over prepared I also you have other TV experience and all that, so I kind of knew what it was, and I have a degree in filmmaking, so I kind of understood what it was. But it was definitely a career highlight, and, and uh, there were 60 performers that shot that season. I was the big they shoot in one week, and they aired over the course of the year. And I was the first of 60 performers to go on stage. So I walked out on stage confidently and stood there, and Penn and Teller looked up from what they were working on, made eye contact with me, gave a great big smile from ear to ear and gave a big wave and they they mouthed something that to me looked like, hi old friend and then I got a really big smile and I gave a big wave like that's amazing and then their eyes went up to the screen above my head that said my name Robert Strong and then they looked at each other and said oh that's not him oh. so, <laughs> so apparently I look like someone they know and I'm guessing right. maybe Nicholas Einhorn or somebody because I think I resemble him just just enough so then that was like oh don't let that throw me off my game and all that And there was no audience. So there was no, I I had a lot of jokes. Yeah. And so every joke fell silent. So I had to just imagine the amount of time to pause and that there'd be big laughter there because they edit that in since there's no live audience. And I kind of- Oh,
0: interesting. Because it seemed very natural with the laughter. I didn't realize there was no live audience.
1: They do a really good job uh, sweetening the uh, laughter. They also took out two of my weaker jokes which I think they made the right choice. They they were uh, five out of 10, they were kind of filler and they just weren't even necessary. And uh, some great advice I got from a comedian years ago is every few months or every year, look at your show and take out the weakest 10 material, 10% material, of the material. Don't even try to fix it, just take it out and your show will be 50% better and it won't get shorter. And that's because people are laughing longer at strong jokes. You don't have to wait holding it down, but that's theory we can get to later. So uh, I, had, I had a couple years of Zoom shows, and I could imagine what the audience reaction was. So I'd give nice pauses for laughter breaks, depending on how well I think I delivered it. When I was performing for Penn Teller, I went through the whole routine. Oh, this is another uh, fun moment. Just before I walked on stage, the producer said, under no circumstances, interact with Teller. Oh, and I said, okay. I, said I, I go back and forth to half and half. And he said, don't do it. And I said, can you check and ask? Because that changes a lot of things. He checked and He came back and said, do not interact with Teller. So I walked out on stage and I slipped and I talked right to Teller. And then I think I might have mouthed, oh, f***. And what um, do you think
0: that is? Is it because he's a silent one or he's just not, no, not no, interested in changing? or
1: No, no. Other people interact with him and all that. I don't know the reason. And I, I did spend you know a nanosecond trying to understand why so that I can come up with a solution. I couldn't yeah. figure out why. But... Um, I interacted with Teller, and then I kind of paused, and I went, I I think I mouthed, oh, and then I thought, you know what, just pause here, roll back one line, and continue from there, because they'll edit it out, because I I know they want to make me look good and all that, so I rolled back one line, and then I picked back up again, and I went through the routine, and I talked mostly to to depend. I finished the routine, and they said, not you, we have a technical thing, because I was the first one to go, we need to do it again. Like so I did it the second time and then not you. we got the second thing third time, fourth time. So now I'm doing the same jokes and Penn and Tyler are starting to not even pay attention to me. <laughs> and and in my head, I feel myself ramping up and going faster and faster. In my head, I'm like, you're going way too fast, slow down. But I couldn't. I was like this train that was just picking up momentum. And I did it like three or four more times. And the delivery, like watching your audience not even pay attention to you and no, you know, there's no audience laughing and all that. The jokes were just feeling like they're learning terribly. And then when it aired, I was very thankful. I think they used the first take. So right. they might have cut some together between other takes, but I think they used the first take. And that was the one where I was calm and confident and relaxed and all that. And in your, in my head, I was thinking about if it, this happens, I'll do this. If this happens, I'll do this. It was really linear. I went from beginning to end, and I didn't have to use all – I call them out all the solutions of things that could go wrong if things don't go as planned. I didn't have to use any of them. Everything went fine. So if I were to do it again, I, I, would, I would relax more. And if I do it again, I would play with them more and like talk to them about the situation. I'd improvise, I'd riff with them. And Except for Teller, because you're not allowed to riff with Teller. For, so. I will see next time. I, and I already have planned what I'm going to audition um, and see if I can get on again. So I would definitely do that again.
0: Well, you did a great job. I can't see why they wouldn't Thank
1: consider you. you for a second appearance. Even though you weren't a fooler, though. You did not fool them. Well, I had a, well, there, there's a longer story. So let, I'm going to tell because I think this is interesting, especially to you, Daniel. So once I got the gig, I hired a couple consultants to try to make it a fuller. I didn't think it would fool them because I know it's a method that they use all the time. Yeah. So I pitched the ideas the consultants came up with and they said, no, 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 do the one that we accepted. And right. then it hit me like a bolt of lightning. Here's the trick I should have done. What what I did do is I had uh, five setups and five punch lines. It was like Karnak the Great, where you got the punch lines first, and they matched them and magically they all matched. The routine that I wanted to do that I thought was brilliant was I walk out and I walk up some steps and there's a big uh, counter there and you can see right through it. And I throw a cloth over it that says Magic Jeopardy or Comedy Magic Jeopardy or something like that. And then I have things of five comedians and five of their jokes, and blindly they match them all together. And then I step down off of the steps from the counter and I walk over to Allison, I think it's Hannigan, I'm so terrible names. and, um, That's right, and then yeah. Penn, and, Penn and Teller say, you didn't fool us. I go, really? And I go back to the curtain, the cloth that I put over the counter and I whip it away. And I say, hey guys, sorry, we didn't fool them. And all five of the comedians were going to be there under the table. So I had actually contacted Emo Phillips and Gilbert Gottfried and, and um, three more who said yes, they would do it. And the oh, idea funny. was they would appear there and it would have a false ending like it, there would just be this twist that nobody saw coming and so i'm trying to understand i got these names these billy the mine was one of them these are all people that are friends with um with Penn. so i thought it'd be delightful for Penn to be surprised and, and see his friends up on stage and um, i'm like why wouldn't they say yes to this this is so much bigger and better and then it dawned on me they have six feet magicians and we do what we do we say hey i want to level this up and every time we want to level it up They've got to go to the network and say, I know you already approved this guy, but here's what Mm. we want to do now. And it's like hurting ducks. And they just have to make a a line saying, no, we chose you. This is the routine you're going to do. You're not going to embellish on it because we can't keep going to the network and getting permission to level it up. We need to move forward with the show we have. So if anyone's considering being on that show, develop your idea as much as possible because once they accept you, they're not going to let you – add a twist or a turn or something that maybe will fool them so i never thought that i would fool them but i am a little disappointed that after i i came up with the idea that i think would make the best television they uh rejected it without like they they would have rejected any idea so i'm a little disappointed about that but now i know
0: well that's good advice you once they accept something don't go back and change it ask them to accept it again yeah they have to say no because at some point
1: You got to produce a show. You can't keep, uh,
0: you can't refine infinitely. We can't go over all the highlights because I know you performed internationally. You performed in all 50 states. Let's just do one more venue that people might be interested in. What's your experience with performing for TED? And how do you combine kind of a a sort of an idea with your performance? And what were the ideas you presented to them?
1: I think there's some advice for everyone in there. What I did was I, I kind of identified the world that I want to be in where if I weren't a performer or magician, I would pay money to go to. And, and that world to me is kind of like the um, future med, the Singularity University, the Foresight Institute and all that. This is where tech and innovation talks about doing good in the world in the future and, and having impact and all that. So that's like the world that I like being in. For someone else, it might be Comic-Con. For someone else, it might be Monster Trucks. For somebody else, it might be NASCAR. For somebody else, it might be shakespeare festivals and all that so i identify the world that i want to be in and so what i do is i contact the producers of these events and i say hey would you like me to open a show for you and do a fun five minutes and in exchange for attendance and so instead of paying to go these events i'm actually on stage and part of the part of the events and now i'm actually in that world and all that so if you're a performer and there's a a, another world that you are in that you just love It's a great way to immerse yourself because i think paul draper is doing all the comic cons and he emcees and hosts the events and all that stuff he's known for that and he gets a lot of gigs for that and he's an expert on that because he actually really cares about that world so for me it was it was really just about like on my days off i'd still want to be in that world so i found the world that I, i found my community so a lot of my work today is the intersection of technology innovation and impact in the world and um, I'm happy. Like I don't think, oh, I have to go to work. I'm like, great, I get to go to work because I would have paid to go to that anyway.
0: Yeah, it's a wonderful experience with all the great speakers. And That's a great idea, just to offer your services to get your foot in the door, and to get those people to see you. And then when you have a bigger, bigger ask of them, you're not coming in cold.
1: Yeah. Now, now they're contacting me and saying, you know, we got a conference uh, in New York and we're paying, and it's because they've been interacting with me for 12 or 13 years. I'm now part of their community. They call me their resident magician. Whenever I'm asked back for a third time to uh, sing, I always ask, can I get the title resident magician? So I'm the resident magician of about 15 different things. So I'm very proud of that.
0: And on Google, you're actually the chief magic officer. Unofficial. Yeah, unofficial. So that's very Yeah, it's good to have these titles. You know, people respond to those type of things that they can understand and people understand titles. And yeah. understand
1: awards, and they understand these shows. And I was going to say how I got that was I just kept getting invited back for gigs at Google, and I was working with people who had been there early, like uh, the chief evangelist officer and all that. So um, years ago, one of them in their introduction called me their new CMO, chief magic officer. I'm like, oh, that's good. And hmm. so that kind of stuck. So whenever I perform at any company, I've now put in my introduction: "Please welcome our new CMO, Pauls." Chief magic officer robert strong that's a, a, a fun little thing i think you helped me with one of my earlier introductions which i think is quite tight and solid which i still use i just added that line
0: yeah i think it was went from the art your house to the white house to the big house something like that because you had yeah, it's, uh, performed it's performed the, from
1: all over uh, the world on national television for two presidents of the united states and at the california state prison which is where we found them so from the white house to the big house to our house please welcome award-winning magician robert strong i've said that a few times
0: <laughs> well, it's good because it kind of, it's always good to have a an introduction that certainly has your credits, but kind of has a joke that the presenter can read and present without having to really have good comic timing or, or expect them to sell
1: the joke. Yeah, I, I put parenthetical, you know, pause here, you know, stuff like <laughs> that. So that it's just if they're reading that for the first time, they get the pause and it gets the laughter it deserves. That lands almost every time. So thank you for helping me on that. You've helped me on a lot of things over there. So thank you.
0: Well, thanks for being part of this podcast. Now, we talk about what makes you sort of marketable. a two-way street, one, Daniel. Two-way street. There you go. Uh, one thing is, of course, working for all these companies and getting these TV appearances, but it's also working with celebrities and having sort of celebrity endorsements. What did you learn from sharing the stage with Robin Williams?
1: Oh, my goodness. Uh, another life and career highlight. I got two stories. One's quick and one is one a good lesson. They both have good lessons. I was backstage with him, and we were right at the, you know, the edge of the curtain and they were introducing Robin Williams and the audience was clapping and stomping so loud that the room was like electrified and was rumbling. And I didn't think about what was going to come out of my mouth. I just kind of, it burbled out and I said, Oh my God, they love you. And without missing a beat, he said, yeah, but I'm two lines away from them hating me. Hmm. And I realized that he is ultra aware that it's a dialogue that he talks to the audience and listens to the reaction in real time. He doesn't just hit play and go through his set. He's constantly adjusting for what the audience is in front of him and what the context is and all that. And it was, it's amazing to watch him work and it was even more amazing to watch him work from backstage to see that point of view, to watch the audience, because everybody in his audiences, everybody in the world has a one way relationship with him. People would come up to him after the show and like, my mother was dying of cancer, and the only thing that made her smile was watching um, the one where he plays a woman. Mrs. Yeah, Doubtfire. Mrs.
0: Doubtfire. Yeah,
1: Mrs. Doubtfire, and that was the only thing that made her smile, and, and he was very gracious and listened to all that. But people would say, oh, my God, when I was going through a tough time in my life, I saw you live at, you know, Comedy Day in the park, and you really lifted my spirits. Like, everybody has a relationship with him, and it was incredible to see that. And then the other story, which I think is very important for your listeners to hear, so if you're still with us, this is where you, we mm-hmm. get your, your time's worth out of this. I was asked to uh, improvise with them, and there was probably about seven of us total. And um, I was by far the youngest one, the least experienced, and um, nervous. And we were in a room the size of a, a, a small dressing room, so it's, it's it's a big closet. It's not very big. We're, we're elbow to elbow. And I awkwardly say, would anybody like to warm up? Immediately... Five of the cast members said, we're professionals, we don't need to warm up. Hmm. And Robin said, no, I'd like to warm up. And so since he said that, all the other cast members like, okay, we'll warm up. <laughs> right. So I said, Robin said, what would you like to do? And I said, well, why don't we just list all the things that are going on in the world? What's in the zeitgeist? Like, what's, what's on top of mind for everyone? For the world, for California, for the United States, for the Bay Area, for Mill Valley, for all that. So people started listing what's going on with the PTA board there. And people started listing what's going on with the street construction and going on the news and commercials that were, you know, really popular and overshown and all that type of stuff. So we just listed that and we started, we got a suggestion from the audience. We're improvising and everybody was years beyond my experience level and all that, and they were taking good care of me and all that. And then people started to say things, drop things in the show from what we did backstage and they would talk about, Oh, it's almost as bad as the PTA meeting last night. And everybody in the audience would laugh because that was a local reference that everybody got. And after a few of those references from backstage, Robin Williams looked across stage and gave me a a thumbs up and a smile. And (laughs) he's like, that's because of you. Like that laugh is yours and made me feel really good and taken care of. And then after about 90 minutes of improvising and sharing the stage, Robin Williams walked out for the last 10 minutes and kind of in a way that we knew that he was by himself and that we weren't supposed to join him and he did a recap of the entire night and played my characters and other people's characters and all the things that got laughed throughout the show he did this little recap and the audience just left to their feet that it was like we were performing at sixes and he just took it right to 9.5 for the last 10 minutes and the audience just jumped to their feet and then after the show we talked about how much fun that was and I get in the car i driving home and I'm like he took care of me in that dressing room and maybe not Look like a dumbass. And then I realized yeah. for 90 minutes, he performed at everybody else's level. He was so beyond everybody. But if he performed at his level for 90 minutes, everybody would look bad. And he actually wouldn't have looked that good because he's, he's just like yeah. not connecting with us. So he took care of everybody for 90 minutes. And then for the last 10 minutes, he took care of the audience and gave them the Robin Williams experience they needed. And everybody felt good about it. There was no. So he was operating at this much higher level where he's like taking care of everybody making sure they they had the experience that they needed and how gracious that is and how wonderful it is that he made everybody feel like they were part of something big and even if we were way out of our league with him
0: nice that's a wonderful story i'd like to take care of you too uh, robert and talk about your new book but unfortunately we've run out we've of time we've out of time Um. I'm sorry no we've saved the best for last so in addition to your career as a performer and your your many zoom performances and the way you've you know incorporated modern technology into your performance and your your trade show work which we'll have to talk about in a future podcast you're also not only a new father but a new author as well tell me about your desire to write this book and who you wrote it with and who this book is for
1: I think it'd be so much funnier if I just hung up on you, but I really want the marketing. Um, (laughs) Okay. So uh, David Martinez is a uh, a creative over at Apple for 17 years. And he contacted me at the beginning of the pandemic and said, hey, humbly, you know, I know you you probably don't want to share all your secrets, but I kind of want to leave my job as a writer at Apple and become a full-time magician. Coincidentally, at the time I was shopping around for ghostwriters to help me write the book that was in my head, it turned into an audition. And I was like, well, do you want to barter? I'll teach you everything I know about being a full-time magician and you help me write this book. And he said yes, and we spent two years working on it. We completed the book before Chat QPT even launched. And um, so we did the, all the real hard work. We got about I don't know what the number is, maybe thirty-eight thousand words in there.
0: You could have probably done it in like maybe sixty minutes if you just let the chat box do it.
1: Well, if if I think if I did the chat GPT and then I went back and forth and just kept refining and editing, I could probably do this book in four months. And we did right. it in two years actually writing, and we have like forty-five thousand words that we didn't even use that we wrote. So we really overwrote it. And if if I were write a book again, I would write a better book faster. Now that I have the first one done. But I'm, I'm very pleased with this one and the concept is what lessons do we have to share from a magician's point of view that can help business people at three levels executive presence and leadership and help them lead teams because magicians are really great at controlling focus and attention and creating magical experiences for audiences so as a leader how do you do that the next is how do you create a culture of happiness a workplace people love to come to through amazing, delighting your coworkers. And that's the second topic that we now speak on. And it's also in the book. And the third one is how for sales and marketing, how do you create magical moments for your customers? And this is all from a magician's point of view. It's things that people have talked before and people understand, but we have a unique point of view. And in the book, we also teach about 12 or 15 different magic tricks, depending on how you count them. And uh, when we do the keynotes and lectures, we talk about our stories. We teach everyone a couple of magic tricks. And it's interactive and fun, and the book ultimately for my career is a differentiator, meaning if they're comparing me with another magician and they go, what's the difference between Robert and the other guy? Well, Robert wrote a book on business. And if people are comparing me to a keynote speaker who's going to do a PowerPoint presentation, what's the difference between Robert and the other keynote speaker? Well, Robert does three magic tricks in a show and it's interactive. So the book is really a differentiator for me to reinvent myself and become a keynote speaker. If you uh, want to get a copy of the book, it's on Amazon. Please leave a, a review. And thanks for letting me finally pitch that. I was painful waiting all
0: that time. <laughs> well, that was it wasn't about friendship. It wasn't about sharing your knowledge. It was about pitching your book, I understand. And that book is Amazing Delight. <laughs> and the subtitle is the Secret
1: of now we hit a dead end. <laughs>
0: Well, this is a favor, so you owe me one next, and it'll be uh, oh, okay. it'll be to share to this podcast with your friends and family. That'll be your your part of this will be then to share the podcast and get the word out that I'm doing these bonus
1: episodes. Done and I done. More than all, just jugglers. All of my followers will will learn about this. All seven of them. My mom, well, that's my what dad. it takes,
0: man. You can, you gotta you have to ask. And I thought I'd start with a small ask with Robert Strong and his seven followers, and then work my way up to sort of bigger and bigger fish as I. As I proceeded. Now, speaking of big fish, though, you had quite of a, a big executive do the forward. Who wrote your forward and how would you get that to
1: happen? So um, Adam Shire is the co-founder of Siri and he wrote the forward and it's a beautiful forward. He did a great job and he's the perfect person to do it because he's kind of at the intersection of technology and innovation and impact and magic because when he was a kid, he was a kid magician and he loves magic. And I'm trying to think of how we connected. I was at a, a CEO summit and at the end of the CEO summit, I sent out an email blast that said, would anybody like an invite to the Magic Castle? And he wrote back saying, I'd like to go back, go to the Magic Castle. Since then, he's gotten super involved with Magic and he's been on Penn & Teller Fool Us. And, and he's uh, brought some of the best magicians in the world to his companies and also to a, a an occasional event that he does that's a fundraiser. So um, he has me MC and host those events, and we've become good friends.
0: Fantastic. And that really adds some cachet to your book. I mean, that obviously, the more you can kind of align yourself with these sort of titans of business and the top people in the field, the more legitimacy it gives you as a speaker. And that's sort of your new focus in doing these keynotes.
1: Absolutely, yes.
0: And one more thing. You've had a very magical experience of your own recently. Uh, you're a new father. I am a new father. And you've been married,
1: uh, what, uh, three years now? or Three years. We've been together for eight and a half years. And I've got a baby girl named Robin, not because of Robin Williams, but but we like the name Robin. She's just starting to uh, giggle. And so I have my, my purpose in the world is to turn her into uh, a comedy writer. <laughs> my wife <laughs> wants to be an astronaut, but the comedy writer first. Well, there you go. You're always
0: thinking about how they can serve you and bring, bring <laughs> no, value to your I, life.
1: I actually don't think of that. I think that comedians are the, um, the point of the sword that helps change happen in the world. And I think a good comedian gets people to see things in a new way, in a different way. And I think they can have a lot of impact. So I think one of the ways she could have impact is to be a comedy writer, not necessarily even a performer, but someone who creates content that makes people think, huh, my mind can change. However, she's three months old. I'll let her decide what she really wants to be. I'm, I'm half joking when I wanted to be a comedy writer.
0: Well, I think we both appreciate the role comedy plays in our lives, and the pundits who do comedy, are able to sort of deliver the truth of the reality we all share together, in a way that's palatable, in the way that's uh, amusing and entertaining. Yeah, um, I love the late night shows. I love everything that's going on with the, you know, the Stephen Colberts and the uh, yeah, Seth Meyers and.
1: I, get I find it very Kobe valuable live in New York. It's free. You just have to sign up for it and another live highlight. So I highly recommend that. One of my dreams is to watch that live, live, uh, live taping or the early show. So if anybody uh, has a connection there that would get me in that, that'd be something I'd like to cross off my bucket list.
0: Well, nice. And in, in, in exchange, you can give them a free copy of your new book, Amazing Delight, Secrets to Creating Magic
1: in Business. As many copies as they want.
0: Well, thanks for adding some magic to the Drop Everything podcast and being the first guest of this new VIP, very interesting person experience here on the Drop Everything uh, network that me and my wife uh, produce. And thanks again for being the first guest, Mr. My Robert pleasure. Strong. Thanks, Robert. Thank you. Be well. I hope you enjoyed this bonus edition of the Drop Everything VIP podcast. On this podcast, our very interesting person was Robert Strong. Thanks, Robert. Don't forget to buy his book, Amaze and Delight, Secrets to Creating Magic in Business, available now at Amazon.com. Also, check out the IJA at juggle.org. Keep an eye out for these bonus episodes. They'll be coming once every couple of months. Until then, drop everything, except when you're listening to podcasts.